listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. We are in uh, Luke chapter 7 this morning, verses 18 through 35. And um, as you turn there, as you scroll there, uh, yes, children, you can go, sorry. Children can go down to, to Rooted, absolutely, feel free. Um, for those who are staying in the, in the sanctuary, there are backpacks um, right inside East Hall on the right-hand side in, in bag, bags. You can get those if you want a backpack um, as well. So Luke, eight, uh, Luke 7, verses 18 through 35, and as you're turning there, are scrolling there. Um, if we think back and remember back to last week, we looked at the power and the authority of Jesus, and specifically his power and authority that he had over death. We looked at the, uh, the situation with the centurion and the servant of the centurion. Um, we looked at the widow uh, from Nain and her son um, who had died. And, and all it took was Jesus to speak, right? And, and he dealt with death. He dealt with the reality of death. And death is right? Our, it's a common enemy that we all have. Um, it is our last and greatest enemy, and it is a result of sin. But the gospel in Jesus gives us victory over sin, but it gives us victory over death. And so we have a hope and a joy of our salvation and knowing that we have eternal life because of Christ. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at John the Baptist, or John the Baptist appears again. He kind of faded away um, uh, out of Luke's gospel account in chapter 3, and now he appears for just a little brief momentary little blip on the screen. But we see John the Baptist again, and it's Jesus answering a question that John had and then teaching the crowd about the relationship between John the Baptist and himself, so providing some, some clarity. And so what I want to do, I want to read for us Luke 7, verses 18 to 35. Um, I will pray for us, and then we will have fun this morning in the Word of God. I'll ask you to please stand uh, for the reading of God's words. (laughs) These are the words written by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, that's Jesus, they said to him, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many whom were blind, he bestowed sight. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? 
A reed shaken by the winds? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you uh, through your words. Lord, we know that your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth. Lord, that we would leave this place this morning changed. Our hearts would be changed. Lord, maybe our hearts would be warmed by the truth of your words by the power that is in your words. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So I think it'll be helpful to spend a few minutes um, looking at an overview of John the Baptist from Luke. Don't panic on me here. it It will be brief. But I think this will help orient us a little bit and maybe refresh our memories um, to, to who this John the Baptist guy was. So if we think back to Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, um, it's the prophecy of the birth of John the Baptist. If you remember, Zechariah was serving in the temple, and the angel Gabriel appears to him. Right? And, when we, and when we talked about this, there had been 400 years of silence up to this point. Right, and now God is breaking again into his creation through the angel Gabriel and speaking for the first time in 400 years. And Gabriel explains to Zechariah that this, his son, and, and Zechariah and Elizabeth are old, that this son is going to turn many back to God and make ready a people for, for God. And, and Zechariah doubted that. And because of that, he was unable to speak. But when he communicated this to his wife Elizabeth, His wife, Elizabeth, went into isolation for for about five months, wrestling with what she had heard and been told. 
And then you go to verses 39 and 45 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Right? Remember when Mary walks into Elizabeth's house and greets Elizabeth, John the Baptist jumps in the womb of Elizabeth. And in verses 57 through 66 of Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist is born. Zechariah's voice returns and says, his name shall be John. And the people who are there are there and respond with a sense of awe mixed with wonder. And the question is asked, what then will this child be? For they knew and understood that the hand of God was, was upon this child's. And Zechariah prophesies, speaking to the, the faithfulness of, of God and how this, this child of his is going to be the prophet of, of the Most High, and this, this child of his is going to prepare the way of the Lord, and there's going to be salvation and forgiveness and, and light and peace. Then in Luke chapter 3, we read about the ministry of John the Baptist, living in the wilderness, wearing camel skins, eating locusts and honey, ticking off a lot of people, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, speaking boldly, pointing people to, to Jesus. The message was a message of salvation. The message was a message of, of impending judgment. But he preached the good news. But in, in Luke chapter 3, verse 20, and John was bold enough, right, to actually call out, right, remember he called out Herod's for taking his brother's wife. And we read in Luke chapter 3, verse 20, that Herod had John locked up in prison. And so we arrive at our text this morning in, in John, excuse me, in Luke 7. John is in prison. He, he, he can't go himself to Jesus, and so he has two of his disciples go. John is in prison. John is suffering. John is isolated. He has access to, to some of his disciples, but for the most part, John finds himself alone, probably hopeless. And seeds of doubt begin to, to creep in. Now, don't hear me say that John didn't know who Jesus was. Okay, that's important. But seeds of doubt begin to, to creep in to, to John. He knew that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. He knew that he was doing and proclaiming the message that God told him to proclaim in the wilderness. But he's isolated. He's, he's suffering. There's a sense of despair in John. He, he knew, but, but he questions. 
he knew, but he seemed to be losing sight of what God was, was doing. He had expectations after all. Right? And, and listen, the, the miracles that Jesus did were fantastic. The compassion and the mercy that Jesus was showing through meeting people's needs, physical needs, and healing and casting out demons, it was, was tremendous. And, and his preaching was top rate, top notch. Couldn't beat it. He spoke with an authority that no one else had spoken of ever before. But, but, but when was Jesus going to get to the, the, the bigger issues? There's still Rome and the Roman Empire. There's this Herod guy who threw him in prison. When is he going to get rid of Herods? When is Israel going to get their independence back? Right? It's salvation, but it's, it, it's judgment, and it's making things right. And he's in prison, alone, suffering, isolated, wondering, when, when is this going to, to happen? Is, is Jesus the one who is to come? Or, or, or should we be looking for somebody else? You, you see the doubt that creeps in. We can't miss that. He knew, but there was doubt. There were questions. But here's the good news. About, this, is, this is how you know that John knew, right? Is because John the Baptist did not sit and wallow in his doubts. He didn't sit and just stew on all these questions. He wanted answers. He was seeking answers. He couldn't go himself. So he says, I will send two of my disciples Track down this man, Jesus, and ask him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So in verse 20 of Luke 7, the disciples track Jesus down. And they tell Jesus, listen, John, John the Baptist has sent us to you, and they regurgitate the exact same words that John told them to add, the same question, right? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Verse 21, and in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many whom were blind, he bestowed sights. It's an object lesson. Right? It's an object lesson. Here, I, I will show you what I am about. I will show you my mercy. I will show you my compassion. And he heals. And he does tremendous miracles. And then he answers, in verse 22, he answers these disciples. And he tells them very directly, but very lovingly, go and tell John what you have seen and herds. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, 
and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Here's what you're to think about, about what you're seeing. And what what does Jesus do here? You want to know what Jesus does here? Jesus pushes back into the book of Isaiah. And there's a reason why he does that. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The lame leap like a deer. Isaiah 26, 19. The dead shall live. Their bodies will rise. Isaiah 29, 18 and 19. The deaf shall hear. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord's. Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is doing exactly what the Bible promised that he would do. This is what I'm doing. I'm fulfilling the prophecies in Isaiah. So you see all of this, but look, look, look back and see what the Bible says about the Messiah. You see, Jesus didn't answer John's question by like meeting John's expectations and all of a sudden dropping the hammer of judgment on, on Rome or on Herod's. No, Jesus continued to do exactly what his father sent him to do. Show mercy and compassion. To have the poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed are the poor, for they shall see the kingdom of God of God's, his mercy and his compassion, him him reaching out to people with the good news, that's the focus of his ministry. Judgment is coming. It is. But for right now, this is what I'm about, and he's fulfilling the prophecies in Isaiah. What a powerful answer. Here's what I'm doing, and don't miss this. This is what it's about. I am the one. He could have just said, I'm the guy you're supposed to be looking for. He could have done that. But he's pushing them to, to think, and to think harder, and to think longer about what's happening. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus said, don't be offended by what you see and what you hear. Don't stumble over me. I'm not meeting your expectations. Well, it's not about your expectations. I've been commissioned by the Father to do this work, to show mercy and to show compassion and to preach the good news to the poor. That's what I'm doing. That's what I've been called to do. That's what I've been sent to do. I'm fulfilling 
by divine initiative. Don't be offended. Draw near to me. See the blessing. Understand that I am the one you are to be looking for. I am the long-awaited Messiah. John did do what he was called to do and introduced me to, to the world. Trust in God. Trust in the salvation that he provides through Jesus. Right? Trust in what you know to be true and don't be offended by it. Others will, but don't you be. What a powerful answer. And in verses 24 through 28, John's messengers leave. And I, I would like to think that they probably left rather quickly and excitedly. Like, hey, this is the guy. And then Jesus turns and begins to speak to the crowds concerning John. He's going to teach them. And he asks them these rhetorical questions, right? Basically one question, right? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Right? What did you go out to see? What did you go out there to see? What did you think you were going to see when you went out there? A reed shaken by the winds? Some flimsy guy filled with uncertainty that's going to change his message based upon public opinion? A man that's going to live to, to please others? A man who's going to speak only the words that the influential people want him to speak? That's not the forerunner to the Messiah. John's not a reed. He's an oak. There's strength. There's conviction. Boldness. Uncompromising. It almost seemed like John just loved to step on people's toes and make them squirm. Including Herod's. We now threw him in prison. And that's where John finds himself. The people were drawn to John because he was a man of, of conviction. That he wasn't going to toe the line. Right? That's what people were, were drawn to. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? A man dressed in splendid clothing? Living in luxury in king's courts? John wasn't royalty. He, John didn't hang out in the palace eating rich food. The guy wore camel hair and ate locusts and honey. Right? He was a man of conviction and he was weird. That's why you went. He, he didn't live the way that you would expect someone like him to live. But he was the voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord's. 
Jesus says, no, you went to see a prophet. He was actually more than a prophet. And then Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's who you went to see. You went to see that guy. And he was more than a prophet. And those words would have been very startling to, to the people sitting there, standing there, who just observed all of this, and were trying to wrestle with and understand this. How can you be, how can you be more, than, more than a prophet? We see John had a very unique role, and it was, it was unrepeatable. Right? There, there were many prophets who had come before John, but he was unique. And John's role was John's role, and no one had fulfilled that before, and no one's going to ever fulfill it again. It was John's role. It doesn't mean that, that John was essentially, if you will, greater than Isaiah, or greater than Jeremiah, or any of the other prophets. But he was greatest in terms of his role, and how God had him to function in the plan of salvation. John had the privilege and the honor of introducing the Messiah to Israel. He was the bridge between this, the promise of the Savior and the fulfillments of the Savior. And what made John important was because of who he was introducing, the most important one to ever walk on the face of the earth, and that is the Messiah, that is the Son of God. You see, all the other prophets of old were looking for the Messiah from a distance. John looked at the Messiah face to face. He touched him. He, he baptized him. He was more than a prophet. He was bridging this, this gap. So Jesus can say in verse 28 that uh, among those born of women there is none greater than John. Yet, Jesus goes on to say, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John bridged the gap between promise and fulfillment, but, but there, is a, there is a new era that is now upon us. You go back to Mark's gospel, Jesus is walking around saying, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. He is the kingdom of God. The Messiah has arrived. You believe in the Messiah, you put your faith and your trust and your hope and you stake your life on this long-awaited Messiah, you are going to be greater than anyone who came before in the age of promise. Because you have seen the kingdom of God in its, in its fullness. 
It's about Jesus' rule and his reign. And those who trust in him belong to the kingdom. You see, John saw the beginning of the kingdom. He bridged between the two eras of promise and fulfillments. But we have a fuller, more complete picture than John did. And so those of us who may be least in the kingdom of God is, is greater than, than John. We see the cross. We see the empty tomb. We see what Jesus was called to do and ultimately fulfill. We see the experience, we have experienced, like if you're here this morning, if you're watching online, if you're listening later this week, and you're in Christ, and you're a believer of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, He's your Lord, and He is your Savior, you have experienced the finished work of Jesus in your life, and you know of things that John could only think about and dream about. We know the grace and the mercy of Jesus personally and individually in our own hearts and in our own lives. Our sins have been forgiven because of Christ. He has power over death. We have eternal life because of Jesus. We live on this side of the cross that we have a more complete picture of the gospel. And so we can point people with more clarity and with more power and with more conviction to Jesus and his gospel than John could. Do we? Do we share what we've experienced in our own lives? Then there's this parenthetical statement Verses 29 and 30, when all the people heard this, tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Those who are spiritually poor who recognize their needs, declare God just. They're saying, you want to know what? When, when, I, when I look at my life, God's, God's right. I'm a mess. God's right about my sin. He's right about everything else too, but he's right about my sin and what's going on in my life. I need forgiveness. I need to repent. Right? The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is what John was proclaiming. As those who recognized that were, were baptized, they showed that they understood what John was saying. They understood the, the, the situation and the depth of, of the wickedness and sin in their hearts. And so, like, we need to be baptized. 
But then there were others. The Pharisees and the lawyers. The Pharisees and the scribes. The religious elites. The ones who are all about being right and who are all about interpreting the word of God accurately. Those people rejected the purposes of God. And it doesn't mean that they had the power to like frustrate the plans of God. Clearly they don't. What that means is that in their pride and in their self-righteousness, they said, I don't need it. The the salvation that that God's freely offering to people, I I, I, I don't need that. I I, I am so obedient to the law, I I, I don't need this this, this grace or this salvation. I've I've earned my salvation. I deserve salvation because of my faithfulness to the law. Repent? I don't need to repent. Tax collectors, they need to repent. Me, I don't need to repent. I deserve it. I'm a good guy. I make good choices. My merit alone stands that I deserve salvation. Chilling words. pride of trying to achieve salvation by your own merits, the pride and arrogance in thinking that, that we don't need Christ, that we don't need the gospel, that we have everything figured out, and that we're actually better off than the Bible says we are. And the only people who will find salvation are those who understand that God is right, And that we indeed are sinful, fallen people, and we are unrighteous, and we do need a forgiveness. We can't earn a thing. It's only by the grace of God that we can be made right. And he has accomplished that through his one and only son, Jesus, who he sent to this earth to pay my sin debt, to take the wrath of God upon himself for my sin so that I may be redeemed and restored to my God and my creator. Those people will find Salvation. And then Jesus tells a parable in verse 31 to the end, 35. And he asks a question. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Fantastic question. And he says they are like children sitting in the marketplace And calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. You see, what happened, what was common back then, is that kids would gather out in the neighborhood and play together. Right? Things don't change. Right? And the boys and the girls, the children would love to play, love to play wedding, and love to play funeral. These are things that they would see around them, and so they would try to imitate them. 
Right? So they would, they would play wedding, and there'd be a lot of singing and dancing and jumping around and hooting and hollering, and there'd be a, a boy and a girl who pretend to be married. But then at times they would also play funeral, and they'd probably pretend to cry and walk around with a puss on their face. So they were playing and doing the things that they had seen done. But some of the children didn't participate in this. And so the children would taunt them. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. It's a taunt to try to get them to what? Join in on the fun, right? You were, come on, play with us. So Jesus describes this current generation, and in particular here, he's speaking to the Pharisees and to the lawyers. Like he's covering everybody, but I think he's probably lingering. As he's watching and looking at the crowd, he's probably lingering over some of the Pharisees and scribes and lawyers a little bit more than other people perhaps. Basically, he's telling them, you're immature and you're childish. You're so inconsistent. You're, you're so unwilling to think. You're so fickle. You change like the winds. You're going to be unsatisfied in any circumstance. And anything you find, you will find reason to criticize and complain. And he puts together, puts forward two examples, John the Baptist and himself. That the generation wants to play, but only if they can play by their own rules. And, and you, you read verses 33 and 34, and you, you understand, right, that there's not a lick of acceptance with John or with Jesus, only criticism. John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. John the Baptist is living and doing exactly what God the Father called him to do and live exactly the way he was called to live and, and speak the message he was called to speak. It was a life of self-denial. It was living in the wilderness. It was eating only certain foods, weird foods, dressing weirds. But his lifestyle was too radical for you. It made you, and his message made you very uncomfortable and squirmy. And so, in order to, to rationalize that, you're just going to say, he's got a demon. Because no one would live out there and eat what he eats and speak what he speaks unless he's got a demon. We can dismiss him. You see, John the Baptist would have played funerals. Judgments. Repentance. Calling people in to account a, a heavy message, a, a weighty message. 
a toe-stepping message, too condemning, too primitive. Look at him. Clearly, he has a demon. Well, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Okay, so you don't like John? Try me on. I'm living with a little less restriction. I'm going to eat and drink with anyone I want to eat and drink with. I'm going to associate with tax collectors and sinners. I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to show compassion. I'm going to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Yeah, he lives too loose. Uh, he runs with the wrong crowds. Jesus played weddings. He spent time with sinners. He spent time with the spiritually poor. He preached grace. He offered mercy. He showed compassion to those who didn't deserve it. He spread joy. Nah, not the right message. They criticize him. They dismiss him. They're not interested in the compassion and the mercy and the grace that he's offering. He's not John, but uh, we, we can't, we can't. Yeah, he's not the right guy either. doesn't matter. You see what Jesus is saying here. It doesn't matter. You're going to condemn who you want to condemn. You're going to reject who you want to reject. You're going to sing whatever song you need to sing to reject. That's what he's saying. You hear John, and you're going to say, uh, weddings, and you're going to hear weddings and be like, uh, funerals. Anything that they could say and do to defend their criticism and defend the rejection is what this generation is going to do, in particular, the Pharisees and the lawyers. They're always looking for somebody else, something else, probably often them, themselves, They were going to refuse anything to have to do with God's salvation, with God's grace. They majored in the minors. They're worried about what John wore and what he ate. They're worried about who Jesus ate with and who he hung out with. They weren't willing to wrestle with the deeper issues, the major issues, the repeated call from both John and Jesus to, to look honestly at themselves, look at their own heart, look at where they stand before God and see the grace of God's. It's very easy to be critical 
about anything and everything and anyone. There are some people who are very good at always finding fault. That are always looking for something else or someone else. And it's the same thing when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the gospel. You can have conversations and we pray for gospel opportunities. And as you share Jesus with people, as you share the gospel with people, you will encounter people that will always have a reason why it's not right. They'll always have an excuse for not believing And the harsh reality is, and this is what Jesus is speaking to um, with this parable and the explanation of the ministry of John and his ministry. The problem's not with Jesus. The problem's with that person, right? Because he says in verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom being God's way, justified, shown to be right and true, children being followers of, of Jesus. Yet God's way is shown to be right and true by all who follow Jesus. Verse 35. Wisdom's children are those who understand their need for the gospel, their need for forgiveness, their need of a savior, and they accept it, and they understand it, and they're humbled by it, but they're, they're, they're desperate for it. Right? And that applies to those who, who may not be in Christ, who may not be saved. Right? They may be hearing this for the first time about the this, this, this sin and depravity and all the things that are happening in the evil and the wickedness and that they need help and that's, that's Christ. Right? But, but the same applies to, to me. I look at my life and I see the sin and the wickedness and the evil and just the darkness that can be in my life, it could be in my heart, and I understand that I need the gospel each and every day. We don't graduate from it. We need it each and every day. It's hearing it. It's hearing the good news. It's, it's accepting it, and then it's living it. That's what the call is. See, the Bible is very clear. Luke is very clear here. Right? If we go all the way back now to, to John in prison, having doubts, he knows, but there is a reality and there is a struggle that we all have at times and in certain seasons with doubting. We, we know it. We know the truth of the gospel. But at times, 
we, 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 we struggle with, with doubt. And that's the reality of, of living, right, in a fallen world. And so we must battle this. We are constantly being bombarded with images and, and words and things that try to distract us from the truth and from what we, we know to be true. And so we have to battle this. John battled this. He sent two disciples. Get me an answer. I just got one question. Get me an answer to this question. And he got his answer. We need to be a people in those seasons of doubt that seek answers, to not wallow in our doubt, not to, be, not to wallow in despair and in isolation, because that's the tendency, right? Satan wants to isolate us and get us alone, because then he can just feed the doubts. That's what he wants to do. But we're to be people who seek answers. We're to come along our brothers and sisters in Christ who are doubting and, 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 and help them to, to see more clearly the truth of God and the gospel. And we need to be humble enough that when we're in a season of doubt to say, hey, brother, can you help me? I'm struggling with this. On August 11th of this year, I was driving on the Mass Turnpike, right on the border of New York. I was driving fast. I was speeding. There we go. And I had just heard that my sister-in-law was going to die. There was nothing that the doctors could do. There's nothing that the medical staff could do for her. And I can remember driving and, and out loud complaining and doubting God. Not her. Not now. I remember back to songs that we sing here at TVC, podcasts that I listened to, sermons that I listened to about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. And it helped me get over my doubting. I still don't understand it. I don't know if I ever will. In that moment, I could have come up with a laundry list of excuses not to believe in the goodness and the faithfulness of God and to doubt His goodness. We have those seasons. Because here's what happens in our hearts. We despair. We feel isolated. We feel hopeless. We believe that God isn't caring. You might never verbalize it, but we act that way. We think that way. That God's never caring. He isn't caring. We have negative thoughts that flood our minds. We feel sad. We feel gloomy, depressed. 
All we want is peace and comfort. How come we just can't have peace and comfort and you doubt? That's what was going on in John's mind in prison. Right? You trace it. The opposite of doubt is hope. Hoping in the goodness of God. Hoping in the plan of God. Hoping in the gospel. Doubts will come and go. But when those doubts come, what is Jesus saying in verse 35? God's way is right by all those who follow Jesus. Right? We, we can't go with the court of public opinion. It changes every 32 seconds. We have to go and rely on what we know to be true and not to be offended by what we know to be true and understand what is true about us, what is true about our Savior, and hope in those things because those things are worth hoping in. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your words. Lord, I thank you that you are true. That in you and you alone, we have hope. Even when we find ourselves in seasons of doubting. Lord, and when we find ourselves in those seasons, when we find those doubts creeping into our minds and into our hearts, when we live in light of those doubts, that's sin. Because we're not trusting you. We're not pinning our hope on you and on your cross and on your gospel. So, Lord, may we be quick to ask for forgiveness when we doubt. Lord, give us hope. Help us keep our eyes on the hope that we have that can only be found in Jesus and the power and the beauty of his gospel. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit twinvillageschurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria.